Hello! Welcome to the Edit Button episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined from the Axios office. Well, I'm in the Axios office, but my colleague, Emily Peck, you're still at home. Yes, hello. And we are both joined by Elizabeth Spires. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Tell me about your um, various affiliations, because we have some heartbreaking news here. <laughs> well, here at Slate, I write the Paydirt column, which is a column about the ethics of money and personal finance. But you're now adding another another arrow to your quiver. Is that a, another string to your bow? Yes, I'm now a co-host on Slate Money. Wait, which is what? Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't tell you. <laughs> Well done. This is great. Now, this is awesome because now I have two people who love to tell me that I'm wrong about everything, which is how we like it here on this show. And we're going to talk about Elon, the man who wants an edit button and looks like he might be getting it and who owns a chunk of Twitter. That happened this week. So we're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about Amazon being unionized for the first time ever right here in New York City. Exciting stuff. And we are going to talk about Ukraine and whether and how giving money to Ukraine may or may not be a good idea. We also have a Slate Plus segment on hot desking and whether that ever works. And spoiler alert, I'm very bad at it. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, we have to talk about Elon. Because Elon Musk, not satisfied with being the tesla electric vehicle gazillionaire and the solar power gazillionaire and the boring tunnels gazillionaire and the space flight gazillionaire and the satellite gazillionaire and all the rest of it and the sort of you know occasional met party grimes arms candy is now on the board of twitter the single largest shareholder of Twitter, teaming up seemingly with Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, who claims that he's been trying to get Elon on the board for years. And the two of them could be unstoppable. Does he have designs to take over an entire social network? Is this what billionaires do in their spare time is think to themselves, I should just take over Twitter? All of this for an edit button. <laughs> I mean, it is a lot. It is a lot of effort to go to for an edit button. And okay, well, why don't we start with this because it is the the question of the moment. Um, Elizabeth Spires, do you think that an edit button is a good idea? <laughs> I I want an edit button. I, I think I'm in the minority there, but it's because I write a lot of threads, and then invariably I find typos in like the middle tweet. So you can't just delete the whole thread and then, or you can repost it, but then it's really annoying. So I, I'm a compulsive threader who, who makes a lot of typos. So of course I want an edit button. Emily, should we have an edit button? 
I mean, who cares? Yeah, sure. We should have an edit button. Everyone does typos on Twitter. It's not hard to pull it off. You can keep the old version. You know, this has been edited. Click to see the old version, kind of like how Facebook does. I don't think it would be the end of the world by any means. I don't think that's why Elon Musk is now on the Twitter board and holds a little over 9% of the Twitter stock, um, right? I think it's because, like Felix wrote, he wants to be a media mogul of of our time, and that means you know, being a part of Twitter. It doesn't mean like buying the Washington Post or anything like that. And the news did coincide with Musk overtaking um, Jeff Bezos on some of the, one of those billionaire lists or something, which is kind of interesting. Well, Jeff Bezos, you know, he, he lost a bunch of money just by getting divorced, right? I think if he hadn't got divorced, he'd still be number one. Sure. Let this be okay. a lesson to you, Slate Money listeners. Stay married, <laughs> and that way you can stay atop the... The yeah. the rich list rankings, yeah, that was quite. It was very damaging. It p- pushed him from from one to two. So he's really that's <laughs> devastating for Jeff. I guess the question is, will Elon Musk prove to be more influential on Twitter's board than just as Twitter's biggest troll, basically biggest biggest shit poster, biggest shit poster, right? What do you think, Elizabeth? Yeah, I think um, he's already sort of turning Twitter into a meme stock. <laughs> so anytime he insinuates that he might do something, you, you can sort of ex- expect the stock to move. And I think that alone is, is, you know, influence, at least in terms of the way the other board members view him, uh, how the company views him internally. And he does have a lot of cultural power on the platform. So in as much as they care about that, you know, that's that's significant, I think. I think so. I wrote a column for Wired back in 2018 saying that Twitter should ban Elon Musk from Twitter, that he was that bad. I think 2018 was probably the low point for Elon Twitter. That was when he would send like a troll army against any journalists who dared to criticize him. It was when Tesla was struggling and he didn't know whether it would survive and he was very much on edge and he is open about the fact that he wasn't sleeping and he was very you know irascible but he took he took his anger out in like very very bad ways especially on female journalists and obviously on you know people trying to rescue kids in caves in thailand calling them pedo guy and stuff like that like he is he is not an example of someone who uses twitter in a sort of socially upright and responsible way he is a troll he is a shit poster and now he is on the board of twitter and i just feel like he doesn't do things by halves like why would he want 9.2 percent of twitter i think the reason why twitter stock has done so well this week is not because it is a meme stock but it's because everyone knows that if if elon wants 9.2 percent of twitter what he really wants is 100 percent of twitter and that he's going to have to pay you know, a takeover premium. So they're bidding it up. I don't want Elon Musk to take over Twitter. I don't know how either of you feel about it. I just feel very uncomfortable. It would be terrible. It would be very, very bad. It is a public utility and you don't want to turn it into a billionaire's toy toy plea. Yeah, I mean, I already saw some some stories yesterday that were like, well, Elon wants free speech on Twitter, which is a private company and there's no, the Bill of Rights does not include social media platforms to my knowledge and and talk of bringing back the former president to twitter which really makes me sick to my stomach like i really would not 
like that to happen if that's like the end result of this if that's where we go I was there. I was absolutely astonished at how much better Twitter got after Trump was banned yeah I I, I was I was in favor of banning Trump just on the basis of like we should ban trump what i didn't expect is that it would improve the product the overall product by a noticeable amount yeah it's like when a bad colleague like finally leaves the job and you're like oh god we were spending like 50 percent of our time just like talking trash about him and now he's gone it's like the air yeah but now i'm back emily like you can't you can't (laughs) say that anymore I mean, some of it, too, is because, you know, Trump set a tone for a certain type of conversation and gave other people license to behave badly. And Musk kind of does that, too. The troll army still exists. And I see it every time I write something even slightly negative about Musk because they end up in my DMs. So I I think uh, when, when he starts talking about free speech, what he really means is license to do or say whatever he wants. And if if that's the direction the platform goes in, it's not going to make for a better Twitter experience. Right. As as if Elon Musk is someone who really suffers from inability to say whatever he wants. Exactly. Yes. Right. But the one thing I'll add to what I just said, which is the dread I feel about Elon Musk actually controlling Twitter is Tesla seems like an okay company. Like he's, it seems that's fine. It's terrible. It, it suffers from crazy racism. Look oh, at all yeah. of the class action the suits. Yeah. He's moving to Texas because he can't be bothered to pay taxes. He's, you know, he's hand in glove with the Chinese with that massive gigafactory in Shanghai. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm but not going to. the gonna... product. <laughs> <laughs> the product falls apart. The product is famously shoddily constructed, but it does go fast. Crashes itself automatically. It, it, you know, it does have a voice recognition software where if you say open poop hole, then that will make it open the little thing so you can recharge it. Um, should we also talk about like the missteps of Elon Musk in in filing for his stock and all that? Are you excited about that? I think that? that was just him trolling the SEC, right? I mean, I don't think we need to go into incredible detail about the difference between 13G and 13D filings because that will put everyone to sleep. But the but the fact is that, you know, Elon famously tweeted that SEC has a three-letter acronym and the second word is Elon's. Um, this is the guy who just loves to cock a snook at the SEC whenever he can. And if he can piss off people at the SEC by filing a 13D when he should have filed a 13G, then he enjoys that. But, I mean, he was late in in declaring that he held the stake and was able to buy more stock at, like, the 30-ish dollar price, even though when he finally disclosed that he held all the stock, the stock price went up. So, like, he made kind of a lot of money by being late to, you know. Yeah. Which is why there are rules against that kind of thing, and and which is exactly why these rules exist. And he's like just laughing; he doesn't care because he's Elon. Also, the SEC would really have to go scorched earth on him over that to to get anywhere, and I don't think that they have any incentive to do that. And he knows that, you know. He he. Whenever he filed the the documents, he has a whole army of lawyers telling him how to do it correctly. So I don't find it plausible either that he was doing it unintentionally uh, he's I, i'm not sure he has an army of lawyers to be honest like elon really does strike me as someone as like 
one of the billionaires with the fewest layers between him and the world. I think I think he really, you know, he fired all of his PR people. He's like, I don't need a PR anything. I can just have a Twitter account. He obviously doesn't listen to lawyers. He doesn't listen to the SEC. So I think he can he can just carry on doing his thing and like and basically on the basis of well if the sec really does try and prosecute me then i have enough money that i can pay the fine then twitter with elon running it is going to be like truth social trump's social media failed social media network is falling apart by the minute but now it's like elon's twitter will be the new truth social right well i mean so this is the big question right is is you know, does having two libertarian Bitcoin bros effectively controlling the Twitter board? Because, like, it's very hard to imagine that the board of Twitter won't do what Elon and Jack between them want. Is that worrisome? And I think the answer is absolutely yes, it is. Like, this is one of the big problems with Twitter being a for-profit public company is that it is susceptible to multi-billionaires coming in and buying up large chunks of it on a whim and then just deciding to change it. That's something you can do under capitalism. And it kind of frankly terrifies me. So what do we think the worst case scenario is here, just for purposes of conversation, and Elon Musk run Twitter? How is it different? Well, my worst case scenario I've already stated is the return of Donald Trump. But maybe there's something else I've overlooked even worse than that. What could it be? I think that that one of the things that Twitter has put a huge amount of effort into in recent years is trying to make the platform slightly more civilized, slightly less toxic, try and cut down on the amount of abuse, um, and so on and so forth. And it's become a little bit strong, you know, stronger in terms of banning people and suspending people and trying to say like, no, we we want to create a healthy conversation here. And if you're not creating a healthy conversation, then we are not going to think twice about banning you. Um, and presumably all that would go away, right? You, we would have all of the COVID truthers coming back. We would have all of the QAnons coming back. We would have all of the Trumpists coming back. And we would have all of the you know, the doxings and the harassments and so on coming back. And like, how would that be good for anyone? No, that would be terrible. Well, I mean, Jack had to go from Twitter because he couldn't be CEO of two companies. So why does Elon get to be CEO? of? Not that that's on the table right now, but like. Remember that Elon. Remember that Elon was CEO of two companies. He, well, he still is, right? He's the CEO of SpaceX, right? So he can't be a third. He can't have a third job. Come on. Well, he was he was the CEO of three because he, he did have Solar City and SpaceX and Tesla, and then he merged Solar City and Tesla. But now he's like two isn't enough. I need three. No, I don't. I don't think he will take over as CEO. I do think that you know that in the back of his head he's like you know remember he had that dream of taking Tesla private at four hundred and twenty dollars a share. Um, you know he probably has this dream of like I could take Twitter private and then it you know as a private company it can do whatever it likes and he's not wrong about that. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. 
subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. All right, so should we change to less depressing news and talk about what happened in Staten Island this week? Yes, of course. Emily has a huge smile on her face. You're clearly happy about Staten Island. This could be the very first time that Emily has ever been happy about Staten Island. (laughs) (laughs) That's mean. Um, No, but this is great news. This happened right after we, I think around the time we were recording last week, last Friday, there was this big vote at a warehouse in in Staten Island in New York. The warehouse. This massive, enormous, what's it called, JFK 8? Uh-huh, 8,300 workers at the warehouse. And they had a vote um, whether they wanted to be in a union or not. And they voted yes. They wanted to be in a union. And it was a big win. It was like more than 10 percentage points victory, like very definitive kind of victory. And it's the best story because it's these two warehouse workers at the the darkest moment of the pandemic, March 2020. Amazon is like going full speed ahead. No one feels safe. I remember back then, like you, if you were a reporter back then who reported on workers, like it was, it was like everyone in the world was calling you because everything was so awful for these workers at that moment. They felt so unsafe and unprotected. And this one guy, Derek Smalls was like, we should protest conditions. He protested. Um, I believe they fired him. He was like, let's organize a union. And they did. Him and this other guy in the warehouse, Derek, got together and started this movement. And like in less than a year had a vote. And now Amazon has its first union. It's like the best story. You can't wipe the smile off my face about this. Felix. So there, there's a couple of really fascinating angles to this. The The first is that this isn't the first time that there's been a unionization attempt at Amazon. It is the first time there's been a successful unionization attempt. And one of the big differences is this is not some big established union dating back to the 1930s coming in and telling the benighted workers that they're very miserable and that they should join this big historical union this is really i mean this union what's it called the amazon labor union or something it's you know it's like two pieces of two two tin cans drunk together with a piece of string i mean it's nothing it barely exists and yet 
somehow that gave the organizers a level of credibility that it was almost impossible for Amazon with all of its expensive union-busting lawyers and tactics to counteract. Well, it's credibility and access that's really important. I was just reading a piece that um, Steve Greenhouse, the labor reporter, wrote somewhere on the internet. And he was saying they had like a tactical advantage because they were organizing from the inside. So they could be in the break room. They could talk to people. They knew each other as organizers. You know, it's like your friend, your coworker, they understand each other. And they actually had, they were physically there. Whereas like outside union organizers are going to have a much harder time just like talking to people, getting access to them. Um, and at the same time, they had they were able to do more of that talking because there's a friendly um, labor board now under Biden who's like pu- putting out this um, woman, Jennifer Abruzzo, the general counsel, is like putting out all these memos, really enforcing labor laws that went kind of ignored for a long time. Like even today, she's got some other memo saying like, why are we letting companies do these anti-union, you know, captive audience meetings with workers? Like that shouldn't be okay. And it's just like, yeah, that shouldn't be okay. Anyway, it's a very pro-labor, you know, administration and labor board right now, too. I do think it made it harder for Amazon to fight back and say, you know, we are your lovely employer and we give you your paycheck every week and we give you your health care and we give you your livelihood and we give you decent wages. And do you really want to give up a chunk of those wages to these interlopers coming in from outside who have no idea what it's like to work from uh, at Amazon and they just want your, they just want like a chunk of your wages? Like that argument doesn't work nearly as well when it's like your friends who are standing next to you. Yeah, it's it's a total failure of an argument. And that is like the one that they always use. That's like chapter one in the playbook of how to like fight against the union. And it was like totally kaputs. Yeah, that's also why I think the the Alabama effort didn't work as well. You know, it's it's a more conservative area. Um, anti-union sentiment is a lot broader, and they were being organized by an outside organization. So, particularly in the Deep South, when you have people coming down from the North, you know, to to sort of tell people what to do, there's there's a kind of knee-jerk distrust of it. And also, Alabama is a right-to-work state, so people already have a little bit of antipathy toward the idea that they might have to pay union dues, even if they think the outcomes are potentially positive. So it's two totally different environments. Uh, You know, the the dynamics of the company internally might be the same, but I I think the the challenges were completely different in Alabama than they were in Staten Island. Emily, you are the woman with a massive great smile on your face. So can you explain to me how you believe that this tiny little scrappy two tin cans strung together with a piece of string union is going to be able to actually get anything significant out of this, you know, massive gazillion dollar corporation? Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like they this is a, a win already. They already got something out of this corporation by the fact of them of them unionizing. The challenge now is, like you're saying, is to negotiate that first contract. And even though they're a scrappy independent union, they'll have support. Like every institutional big labor union in the country is like, we will help you do whatever you need. We will give you advice. We will help you negotiate. Um, And it's going to be really, really hard. I'm sure Amazon will fight tooth and nail. But I think there's reason to be 
to be optimistic they'll get a contract. How good it'll be, I don't know. It might the first contract might not be amazing, or the second contract might be better. There's already movements at other warehouses, you know, to to organize too. Um, and this is all happening at the same time. There's um, Starbucks's all over the well, the country. I want to say hundreds of Starbucks stores are also looking to unionize in the same kind of independent way. So something is happening, and I think we can be optimistic about it. Maybe I'm. Crazy. And what we can definitely say is that, in terms of woke stakeholder capitalism with these, you know, people who love to run for president and paint themselves as champions of the, you know, broad economy and blah, blah, blah. When push comes to shove, the Howard Schultz's of this world will always be like ultra, ultra anti-union as will Amazon. The companies that like Amazon and Starbucks are happy to claim the moral high ground, but it is very rare to find any of them going, oh, you want a union? Like, that seems sensible. We can just, in, we can just have, like, one interlocutor. Let's, let's encourage that, you know? Right. Amazon could say, oh, well, since this one warehouse voted to unionize, why don't we negotiate a, a nationwide settlement and a contract for all our workers? <laughs> That's not going to happen. And Howard Schultz, there was a, a leaked video of him this week because he just came back to be CEO of Starbucks saying, like, For the third a- time. To fix it, um, we are under assault um, by unionization efforts. Like they take this very personally. It's true. Like, and I know a bunch of managers who um, have found themselves with a workforce that has decided to unionize, and they do always take it personally. They're always like, "Does this mean that I'm a bad manager? Does this mean that I was doing my job badly? Are you telling me that like I'm the enemy because I thought I was your friend?" And they do take it personally. Um, but no, it doesn't mean that. No, of course not. I mean, it's just a matter of leverage. You know, workers don't have any leverage or power, and unions are just a way to sort of even that out a little bit. I don't know. Right, Elizabeth? Yeah, no, they, they tend to, I think management layer tends to view it as uh, an institutional critique of sorts. If, if we need a union, then the, the, there's something about the company that's broken, Um which generally there is. That that's the whole impetus for unionization in the first place. So, uh, but but I think Felix is right. The people take it way too personally, um, especially I, I've seen in, in the tech industry in particular because there's so much veneration of entrepreneur types and founders. Uh, so it gets a little over personalized, I think, with tech companies. I mean, management can fire people at will. How could they, how dare they be upset that you'd want to form a union and negotiate a contract that was like, no, you need a reason to fire me? Like, is that so crazy? Of course not. So, Emily, do you think now that now that the first cracks are appearing in the dam, um, do you think that the unionization trend might expand not just from Amazon warehouses, but actually to Amazon, you know, software engineers and white collar workers? That's such a good question. Um, the the lawyer for the Amazon labor union, this guy Seth Goldstein, he actually represented the Kickstarter. He helped start the Kickstarter union, which was like the first kind of like white collar tech union. Because there there is this movement now in in tech amongst white collar workers to unionize. There's a Google 
labor union in some at some stage of the game it's, or something. Yeah, there's an organization which kind of calls itself a Google union, but it's not mm, actually a union. It's not actually a union. Um, I mean, ugh, I don't, I've not heard anything about that. And in fact, I was on LinkedIn. Sometimes I look on LinkedIn. Um, anyway, I was on LinkedIn the other day and they released their like best companies to work for and Amazon was number one. Just a side note. I thought that was interesting. Do you think, all right, so here, here's my question. Like, if Amazon white-collar workers unionized, do you think that that would make Amazon better to work for or worse to work for? Better? Really? Of course it would be better. I mean, from all the reporting, especially from Jody Cantor at the Times, it seems like it's not an, the ideal place to work. It pays less than the other tech companies, though I think they just raised their wage floor to something that sounds amazing, you know. To they they raised they tech. raised their salary <laughs> ceiling to three hundred and fifty thousand. Yes, <laughs> um, but there were other reporting. You remember the story about everyone crying at the desks and stuff. I think. Oh, we remember um, them. Yeah, so we'll link to that in the show notes. So, um, yeah, why wouldn't a union make that better? You think it wouldn't? No, I, th I think it probably would. Um, but you were kind of, but there was this, but I think you were right that, um, you know, if Amazon is ranked as a company that's good to work for, then that makes it harder to unionize. Yes. And I mean, generally, like if you're at a place where you're, you know, you could make $350,000 a year, like, I guess I don't quite see what your impetus to unionize is like well to make four hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year yeah, but if of you're course. someone who could command that salary you could just not work it there and work somewhere else i don't well i mean but you know if you, if you think about the most powerful unions in america almost eh, maybe not but like would be the the players unions right and in, in professional sports would be the, the football and basketball and baseball players and they get paid a hell of a lot more than three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year Let's let's move on to matters philanthropic because this was this was what I decided to put in my newsletter this week. Thanks to a Slate Money listener who wrote in and asked what you know we thought about how and where to give money if we if we want to give money to Ukraine. Um, and I guess the first thing I want to ask you guys is. The United States government alone has allocated $13.6 billion to Ukraine in various different flavors. That number has since gone up. Other countries have also thrown in hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. The EU has put in a couple billion dollars. The one thing that Ukraine doesn't seem to be short of right now is either military or humanitarian aid there seems to be like just you know a fuck ton of that shit pouring into the country the money is there you know what they need is russia to stop invading um money can't do that so is there any reason for individuals like you and me to throw a few hundred or a couple thousand bucks at ukraine on the basis of like I want to feel like I'm doing something and this is the only thing I can do when there are actually a lot of causes out there which just don't have that kind of excess funding. I think 
you don't have to give your money to Ukraine. I, I'm I'm convinced by what you just said in that in my decision not to donate money to Ukrainians, though I feel terrible and 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 obviously what's happening is horrendous, but Felix, you're telling me they have the the money that they need already, unprecedented amounts of aid. So yeah, if if the donation is merely to make the donor feel good, then it seems like you could feel good giving money to a cause where your money is more needed. Yeah, I think most people, though, especially small dollar donors, don't really think in terms of uh, efficiency or efficacy that much. You know, in, in a lot of cases, they're donating because it gives them a sense of engagement with the issue or they feel like they're already invested in some way. Um, I, I think when you get to the, the higher level of donations, you know, people uh, will be very strategic and philosophical about what they're going to do. But I think for the average person, they just see something happening and, and they want to feel like they're not completely helpless to do anything about it. And writing a check is a pretty simple way to scratch that itch. So. Is there an argument to be made where the donation is like is like speech in that it's an indication to the U.S. government that you know, citizens are feeling really passionate about this. And so, like, we as a country should be engaged on it. Do you know what I mean? 100% yes. And this is and this is why I would answer my own question with, uh, like, yes, you should actually give money to Ukraine. Like, I, I, I kind of phrased it in a deliberately provocative way. Um, but yes, I think that if you give money to Ukraine in general, if there, if there's a big public outpouring of support for Ukraine, that does send a signal to members of Congress and members of the executive branch that this is what Americans believe in and what they want to see the government on their side about. Um, and then specifically, and this is what I wrote about in my newsletter this week, specifically if you give to organizations like the IRC or the WFP, um, which are sort of quasi-official and are very well-connected with the U.S. government. Often what they'll do with that money, instead of just spending it on giving money to refugees or buying chicken sandwiches, is they will use that money to effectively to lobby the government and to say, like, you know, we need more money. Can you give us more money? Last year, the WFP got $100 million more money from the U.S. government than it had done the year previously, right? And it was already big. It went up from like $3.7 billion to $3.8 billion. We're talking absolutely enormous amounts of money that the U.S. government gives to the WFP. And so if you can just move that needle a tiny bit... If you by by supporting WFP by having the WFP in your in your communities and having a whip round for them, and by giving them money, which they can then use to have a presence in Washington and try and go up to the government and say like we could do with another hundred million increase this year, like every like those hundred million dollar increases add up really damn quickly. You know, they're they're all a lot bigger than the total annual fundraising from the WFP. So what you're doing is you're leveraging your money. What I said in the in my um newsletter is that basically your your donation is being matched sixty to one by the United States government. And if you you know, even if your one dollar could be put to better use um, you know, buying chlorine pills in 
Kenya, which is another thing which happened this week, that's comparing $1 with $1. But really what I'm saying is that maybe what you should be doing is comparing $1 to like $60. Your, your dollar can get leveraged if it can persuade the U.S. government to throw billions more behind it, which seems to be what's happening. That all makes sense. I think you should say what the WFP is. WFP is a United Nations agency, which stands for World Food Program. It doesn't have quite the public level of rec- public name recognition that other UN agencies like UNICEF and UNESCO have, probably because it doesn't w- start with the letters UN. It's not UNWFP, it's just WFP. But it is, a, it is a UN agency just like them, and it does raise money from the public just like them, and it does great work um around the world we should we should have a numbers round oh right yeah remember that remember the numbers round Remember that yep we don't just throw this show together you know we have a structure here elizabeth you have a number uh yeah my number is one hundred and ten thousand dollars, and that is what walmart is raising its starting salary to for truck drivers now about the same amount as a you know junior banker at Goldman, <laughs> and and presumably it's a lot harder to get a job as a junior banker at Goldman than it is like well, like I feel like at least if Britain is any indication, almost anyone with the right driving test qualifications can become a drive dri- truck driver. There just aren't enough to go around. They will take anyone right now. Well, because the pay is terrible for truck drivers, so the the trucking industry is always complaining that there's a driver shortage. And then you look at average pay for truck drivers and it's only gone down over the past like 30, 40 years to the Really? 110,000 sounds like a lot to me. Yeah, but I think I think they were at like 80 for Walmart drivers. And they say in the press release as much as, which we all know what that Ooh. means. And, and, Ooh. and I don't know, I, I tweeted some stat from Chris Mims wrote about truck drivers in his book that we had an episode on a few months ago, and I tweeted some stat about how truck driver pay has gone down a lot. I've never had such engagement from the truck driving industry. They were all like, yes, it has gone down a lot. And it's a really awful job. You have to sit in a truck driving for like, I don't know, 12 hours a day. I mean, it's awful, right? And you're being monitored constantly. It's a high surveillance job. It's a high, and yeah, and just and and you have to deal with all those assholes on the road and yes. dr- driving driving anything is miserable. I don't understand people who drive a lot. I'm like, no, don't drive. It's terrible. And I say I submit it is a harder job than Goldman Sachs analyst, right? It's got to be. Got to be right? physically. It gotta has to be. be. Can't order free lunch. The Goldman Sachs analysts they they have like standing desks and shit these days. Yeah, standing desks and Excel sheets and expense dinners. Right? How bad could it be? Oh my god! Don't email me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, my number is five point zero two percent, which I got again from Axios Markets. Thank you, Emily. That is the official. Mortgage News Daily latest survey rate for the 30-year fixed mortgage has surpassed 5%, ah. which is a big deal for people who want to buy homes because no one's going to refinance at that rate. I can pretty much guarantee you that. So the only people taking out mortgages right now um, are going to be people buying homes. There has been a cooling effect. We might report on it in markets. It's unclear to me, but... Things are slowing it depends down. what kind of market you're in. There are lots of markets where most of the buyers are cash buyers, and then there are other buyers where nearly all buyers have to take a mortgage. And I feel like that is going to be—it's going to be interesting to see whether that makes a big difference. 
it certainly it certainly seems to put more people who do need to take a mortgage at even more of a disadvantage to cash buyers than they were already. For sure. Yeah, it probably hits like first time home buyers a lot. Um yeah, and people with less people with less money. Oh yeah, rather than people who are like, you know, <laughs> boomers who are downsizing and selling something bigger, they don't need yeah. to take out a mortgage. Emily <laughs> Emily, we haven't heard from you. <laughs> what is your number? Four. My number four. is four. As we were about to record, I was looking at Twitter, which still isn't fully controlled by Elon Musk yet, so I feel like it's okay. And it occurred to me that there are now four women on the Supreme Court. Oh my God, isn't that crazy? Because that's um, almost half. Yeah, on Thursday, Katanji Brown Jackson, um, the Senate confirmed her nomination. So that makes four. And it's sort of ironic, though, because the court's probably going to knock down Roe v. Wade soon. And it has the most women it's ever had. And then that's also going to happen is just kind of a terrible, terrible irony, I guess. But still worth noting, right? Is it? I think. Do we, do we, what do we, what? I mean, I I, um, I think it's great that we've got a public defender on the court. That is a big first. What do you think the fact that she's a woman, you know, speaks to? Like, do you, wh- where do you think that's going to make a difference? Looking at, you know, do you think there's any anything you can look at the women on the court and say like, there's a difference between them and the men? Um, well, I'm sure Elizabeth has good things to say about this, but I, I mean, I'm not really, I'm not like a rah-rah kind of gender essentialist. Like if you have more women, then you have better this or that. And you see people arguing that a lot. Um, and clearly like partisan affiliation really matters. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, I wasn't exactly, you know, she's quite conservative. She's not She's extremely conservative and she's definitely not going to vote. Anything like that. Yeah. yeah. But I think in general, it's good to have a diverse group of people on the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. The Women. Supreme Court, I mean, I, you know, the Supreme Court Hispanic should look people, like, like America. Look like America. Yes. You know, even if we still have a Supreme Court where what, all of them, I think, went to either Harvard or Yale. <laughs> uh, it's also significant that she's the first black woman on the on the court. Because I think, you know, that having some sort of uh, connection to a lot of the, the cases that they're looking at is important for the way the rest of the country engages with SCOTUS. Um, and right now we're seeing so many voter suppression cases come before the court around redistricting and gerrymandering. Um, so I, I think even just for purposes of influencing the dialogue around those issues, having someone on the court who is black is is. Well, you know, we, really we have someone important. on the. There was or, someone sorry, on the court who was black. First black woman on the court. <laughs> we, but uh, but but he was not someone who seems to care very much about gerrymandering. It has to be said. No, he doesn't. We are going to be back on Tuesday with Slate Money Goes to the Movies, where we are going to bring back Kathy O'Neill to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, a wonderful person talking about a wonderful film. Like spoiler alert, everyone loves this movie, including Emily Peck. Uh, so yeah we'll be talking to Kathy it's always great to have her back so do send the requests coming in we do listen to them we do answer them slate money at slate.com many thanks to Shana Roth for producing and we'll be back next Saturday with more slate money
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.